So today, we are looking at the resurrection and, in a way, Palm Sunday. Next, uh, this Friday, of course, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday. After today, we talk about the resurrection. Uh, So it's a little bit odd this year, but uh, really here at Meadowcroft, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Uh, We remember every Lord's Day that our Lord is the resurrected Lord. And so in that sense, it's no different than any other Sunday. We are nearing the end of the Gospel of John. And this morning, we look at John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. If you have uh, your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up uh, and follow along as I uh, read. And if you uh, have a Bible with you, uh, I'd encourage you to keep it open as we look at various words and phrases in this text. If you're here today visiting and you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, if you look in the seats in front of you, you should find a Bible there. And our text will be on page 906 of that Bible. John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. I'll begin at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary Magdalene, this woman that John focuses in here, has seen a lot in the past three days. She has seen her Lord, the one that she hoped would be the Messiah, uh, hung, beaten, uh, betrayed, and hung on a torture rack. She saw him die. She saw his body taken down, wrapped in linen cloths, and she saw that body uh, placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And now, on this early Sunday morning, she has followed Peter and John, presumably to the tomb, after she told them what had happened, that, uh, that the body had been taken. She saw them look in and walk into the tomb, and, and she saw them walk away. And that's what we find in verse 10. It says in verse 10, then the disciples, Peter and John, went back to their homes. 
Notice, at least we don't get any indication here, that she doesn't see them jumping for joy. She doesn't see any kind of startling reaction. She just sees them walk home. While they leave, we see here in verse 11 a contrastive. Uh, John is contrasting their actions with hers. They left. They went home. But Mary, John says, stood there. She stood still. She stood there. And she didn't just stand there, but, but John said she stood there weeping. Notice how many times that word is used throughout this passage. Why are you weeping? She was weeping. Why are you weeping? She was weeping. And this wasn't just some quiet whimpering with tears silently falling down her cheeks. This word means to cry freely and profusely. She is weeping uncontrollably. And again, I think you can understand that. After all, if you picture what she has in fact uh, witnessed, then her hopes are dashed. Palm Sunday was just a week earlier, and that day she had seen Jesus ride into Jerusalem, and, and he was supposed to be the Messiah. He was the one that she had followed for three years, and he was the one that was supposed to ride into Jerusalem on a, a war horse and throw out with force the Roman Empire, the occupiers. He was the one who was supposed to be the Messiah, the Davidic king who would set up a new monarchy by force. Instead, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble, we hear. And after proceeding into Jerusalem, went all the way to a cross, to his death, and now buried in a tomb. When you think of it that way, perhaps Mary is the one who gets it best. Why aren't the rest of them weeping uncontrollably? I mean, maybe they are, but we don't know that. We do know Mary. Mary is the picture of hopelessness. She is the picture of helplessness. Now let's pause here for a moment and, and ask ourselves, what if the gospel accounts ended here? What if there was no more New Testament? All we have is a woman standing outside the tomb of Jesus, which is now empty, sobbing uncontrollably, and having only the words of two men dressed in white. Only that message, which now it seems she's completely abandoned, the message that he is risen. Remember, she went back to the disciples, she told them what happened to, to Jesus' most uh, uh, trusted inner circle, Peter and John. She shared with them that he had, in fact, risen, just as he said, and they essentially called her a liar said that she was making up stories. What would we be left with today? If the Bible ended here, we would be left with a mysterious disappearance and a message. Probably each one of us here, if we were even Christians, would be sitting here this morning hoping beyond hope that that message was true. But what else would we have? Well, at any rate, Mary is weeping uncontrollably. And as she weeps uncontrollably, she decides to take one more look into the tomb. It's, it's almost like maybe she has to look one more time just to make sure that the body is, in fact, gone. 
And through her tears, verse 12 says that she sees two angels in white. There they are again, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, remember last week, John made a specific point to talk about how the linen claws were lying there. He really zeroed in on, on, on their position and, and, and where they were placed and how they were placed. And now, notice, he, he's the one guy out of all the, all the gospel writers that report the resurrection of Christ, that report where the angels are sitting. He says, one was sitting at the head and one was sitting at the feet of where Jesus had lain. I don't think that's... Uh, superfluous. I don't think that's any, uh, you know, just uh, needless information. I think he notes this because if we go back and we look at Exodus chapter 25, we find a similar positioning of angels. When God is giving Moses and giving the Israelites the instruction on how to build the tabernacle and, and how it would be built and, and all, of the, all of the details of it, he says this, I want you to make an ark. You shall make the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, two angels of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them. And the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end. Make the other cherub at the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim its two ends. They will spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. You've probably seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what this looks like. He says, there, there at this mercy seat, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. Perhaps, just as John has been hearkening back to the Old Testament all along and showing how Jesus is the true temple to which the temple was pointing. Perhaps just as, as he hearkened back and showed that Jesus is the true manna, the true bread from heaven, just as Jesus is the Lamb of God to which all of those sacrifices pointed. Now, subtly, perhaps, he is pointing out that Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the one through whom God supremely met with his people, the one in whom the mercy of God was ultimately displayed. Now, it's not really where they're sitting as, that's as important as what they say, because these are angels. We use that word angel a lot. The word angel is, is just a transliteration of a Greek word, not a translation, a transliteration. The Greek word is angelos, from which we get angel. And that word angelos simply means messenger or envoy. And so angels were messengers. They were sent to give a message, a specific message. And they've already delivered this message to the women. And so we, we find this in Luke 24. We find it actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? I'll read from Luke 24. The angels say to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day rise? Go, tell his disciples. So the women left, and Luke tells us when they arrived and told the disciples, the disciples thought they were making up an idle tale. So is it any wonder that now they ask her a question? 
If, in fact, you've heard this message already, dear woman, then why are you weeping? Why are you back here again looking at us and sobbing uncontrollably when we told you that he has risen from the dead? Woman, why are you weeping? You can see here how in her answer, uh, she has completely abandoned any idea that he has in fact risen. It shows you just how easily, and remember when the women left the tomb that first time, they were a bundle of mixed emotions. We don't get the, the message that, that after they heard the angel's message and left the tomb that, that they were jumping for joy having heard that he had risen. They, they left fearful, wondering what was going on, a part joy, part fear. They, they went to the apostles with this mixed emotion of, of what had happened. And, and you can see how whatever joy she had has been snatched away by the disciples. Again, Jesus is closest of inner circles telling her that she must be lying. Notice what she says, her answer. They say, why are you weeping? She says, they have taken away my Lord. What does she mean by they have taken him away? I mean, I think on one level, because you just see it in the next clause there, she means on one level that simply that the body has been moved. Remember, she went back with a mixture of her own spices to anoint the body, to pay her last respects, if you will. And the body that she expected, that she saw laid in the tomb, is now gone. And so on one level, she's of course expressing that simple fact, that the body's been moved, but it's interesting that she doesn't say that. She doesn't use the phrase, the body has been moved and I don't know where to find it. She says, they have taken away my Lord. And I think on another level, she means something far more than just that the body has been moved. Because after all, if she had turned around and seen the body laying 10 feet in the other direction and found the corpse, do you really think all of her weeping would be over? Do you really think that would have solved her problem of intense grief? When she says, they have taken away my Lord, I think she means that three years earlier, Jesus had become her master. He had become her guide, her teacher, her constant companion. She had become his disciple, his learner. And when they, everyone involved in this, had betrayed him, when they had arrested him, when they had handed him over, when he had gone through a, a false and horrific trial, and when they condemned and crucified him, all that he had been to her had been taken away from her. Her Lord had been taken away. Isn't that what death does? See, our world tells us that death, I guess if you watch The Lion King and, and things like this, death is just kind of a part of the circle of life. We live and then we die and there's really uh, nothing too bad about it. You know, it's, it's, it's the way nature works. And if you live long enough, you live a good, healthy life. And, and really, what more can we ask? But the Bible doesn't call death a natural part of life calls death an enemy, an intruder, something that 
entered in when sin entered in. And we who have experienced the death of a close loved one know that death takes that person from us. That everything that person was to us in this life is now gone. And all we have are faint memories. Memories that grow perhaps more faint as time goes on. And and that's all she has. All she has are memories of her Lord. And yet look at what she calls Him. She says, they have taken away my Lord. Jesus may be dead as far as she's concerned, but He will not stop ever being her Lord. Why? Why does she still refer to Him as her Lord? I think it's because she will never forget how He rescued her. And the condition she was in prior to Him calling her to himself. Because while Matthew may have been rescued from tax collecting and, and Simon may have been rescued from zealotry, Mary was tormented by seven demons. She was in a pitiful state. She was the picture of helplessness and hopelessness before our Lord cast out those demons and made her a disciple. And now here she is, her Lord gone. She's the picture again of helplessness and hopelessness. She seems here standing and looking at the tomb as though she is completely lost. And really, isn't that how we all feel when standing by the grave of a loved one? Because even after over 2,000 years of medical advancements and technological and uh, scientific experiments and inventions, we still are no closer to rescuing someone from the grave than they were. Like Mary, before the grave, all each of us can do is weep. Having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Why didn't Mary recognize him? John doesn't tell us. I mean, why, if, if, if he's been her constant companion for three years, if she's going there looking for him, why does she not recognize him? And again, we don't, we're not told. Uh, we have some ideas why. Perhaps it's that Mary's eyes need to be opened. Uh, we see this in Luke chapter 24 when the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Luke tells us their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes had to be opened somehow. Perhaps it's because Jesus' resurrected and glorified body looks somewhat similar to how he looked before and somewhat different. It seems to be the case that, for instance, when Peter and John, as we'll see uh, in a sermon a couple weeks from now, they see him on the shore, yet they do not know that it's him. Especially after the last time she saw him. Can you imagine how he looked on the cross? Scripture says he didn't even resemble a human being. You can imagine now, after what she last saw, not recognizing him. Perhaps she can't see him very well through the tears. Maybe it's as simply uh, as she can't recognize him due to the context. I know that's probably happened to all of you. It's happened to me many times where you see someone out of context. Even though you know them, you don't quite recognize them. It just happened to me at the Science and Faith Conference. 
a guy that I hung out with many times growing up in youth group, uh, called my name. I was walking to find my seat, and I hear, Max Benfer. I turn around and look, and I see this face, and I know I know him, but I have to go through in about five seconds a Rolodex in my head until I know that it's my buddy from youth group. I didn't recognize him, first of all, because we haven't seen each other in quite a few years, but second of all, why was he there? <laughs> uh, it turned out he told me why he was there, but, but you see, I didn't even have the, the problem of thinking that he was dead. Mary is assuming that Jesus is a corpse. Well, at any rate, Mary is, does not recognize him. Notice that Jesus asks her two questions. The first question is the same question the angels asked her only moments earlier. Woman, why are you weeping? But notice that the second question I think is more important. In fact, I think the second question is perhaps the most important question that can be asked of any human being. Whom are you seeking? Because in that moment of helplessness, who was she seeking? She was seeking a dead body. She was seeking a Lord who had died and remained dead. Is it no wonder then that she has no hope? Notice Mary's answer. She doesn't say, I am seeking Jesus, my resurrected Lord. I know he must be around here somewhere, calling dead to life. No. She says, instead, sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you, you have laid him and I will take him away. Notice the statement. I mean, what a, at the same time, intensely sad and yet loving statement from Mary. Here she is, assuming he's a gardener, assuming that, that maybe he took the body away, maybe he has to take care of these tombs or who knows what she's thinking? He has to tend to this garden tomb. And she says to him, if, if the body is causing you any trouble, please just give him to me. I'll take him off your hands if that's the problem. Mary is offering, I don't know how she's going to take care of it. She's offering to take his body away by herself. And I wonder why she's asking that. Maybe it's because in this moment of, of sorrow, she figures, at least I will have my Lord with me again. But what a pitiful substitute it was for having her Lord alive and walking and talking with her to have his body. Until that moment, Mary has heard from many people She's heard the angel's message. She's heard her fellow women as they banter back and forth about whether or not they ought to tell someone. She's no doubt heard a conversation going on amongst the disciples when they told them. She's heard the disciples tell her that, that she's made things up. She's heard from a lot of people. And she's even heard from the angels again. But notice she still has no hope until she hears one word. One word from one person. 
she hears Mary. And in that instant, and not before, all of her hopelessness is erased. Because in that one instant, she heard the voice of her risen Lord calling her by name. No one else had been able to do that. In fact, if she was there, she heard Jesus say in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the good shepherd. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. And in that instant, the one who was lost had been found. Notice that she turns and looks at him. Obviously, even though she was talking to him previously, thinking he was the gardener, she was looking somewhere else. Perhaps looking down, perhaps looking at the tomb. And then when she hears her name said as only her Lord says it, she turns from wherever she was looking and she looks at him. And it's as though everything else fades into the background. And she says to him, literally, my teacher... No doubt, she runs to him, perhaps falling on her hands and knees at his feet, and as we hear from him, clings to him for dear life. Is it any wonder that she never wants him to leave her sight again? However, verse 17, Jesus says to her, Mary, don't cling to me. Why does he say that? Scholars have a field day (laughs) with this, bantering back and forth as to why he says this. There are some, I think, some pretty um, far out speculation as to why he says this. I think, though, that although some say perhaps it's because people simply aren't supposed to touch him as this resurrected Lord until he ascends to the Father, uh, what's, what's odd about that is that w- once he ascends to the Father, we can't touch him. He sends the Spirit. So what, what would that even mean? But I think if you just look at all of verse 17 and understand that, as we'll see next week, he invites Thomas to touch him. I think it's kind of just simpler than that. I think what he's saying, and who knows how long she hugged him, who knows how long he, he stood there with her. But I think it's simpler than that. I think, see, now he gives Mary a mission. He gives Mary a mission. And her mission is this. Don't cling to me, Mary, but go and tell others the good news. Tell others the good news that I have called you by name and that I am alive. And look at the message that he gives to her. What an amazing message. He says, Mary, go. Go and tell my brothers. Why is he sending Mary to do this? Why didn't he meet them first? What a privilege it is that this one, Mary Magdalene, would be the first person who had the privilege of seeing the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
the morning that he is risen. You would expect maybe him to show up in the midst of Peter, James, and John, or someone like that. Why? Why, Why her? Well, I think it's just like our Lord. Scripture says that our God draws near to the brokenhearted. Isn't it just like our Lord to seek to come first to the brokenhearted? And of all the people that we read about, some are bewildered, some are frightened, some are angry, some are doubtful. Mary is the one who is brokenhearted. Secondly, isn't it just like our God to choose the low and the despised of this world? Mary is the picture of someone who has been despised by those who should love her. But Jesus gives her this privilege. And look at his language. Go, go and tell my brothers. Who is he talking about? Jesus is talking about his apostles. He is talking about the ones who all deserted him a couple days earlier. He is talking about ones who denied him. He is talking about ones who abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. He is talking about the ones that he had called to follow him and trust in him and who did everything but that. And up until now, up until this point, he has called them disciples or learners. He has even called some of them apostles or representatives, authoritative representatives. But now, after they fail him, after they abandon him when he went to the cross, what do you expect him to say? If Hollywood was making this movie, I don't think it would be this. I think that when he rose, this one who had conquered death this one who now had all power and authority in his hands, this one with unlimited power would say to Mary, go and tell those traitors I'm coming for them. They abandoned me when I needed them most. He could have sent her with the worst news any of them would ever hear, but instead he sends her with the best news this world has ever heard. And she does. Mary Magdalene goes. She goes and announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She's already brought one message before, but this one's different. She came before uncertain, wondering if this was true. Could it be that the angels have told the truth? Could it be that these two men in white have told me what is really true? I, all I saw was an empty tomb, but they said He had risen. She came before a bundle of mixed emotions and now I picture her running, leaping for joy. Her message is no longer what it was before. Her message is now what she has seen herself. Notice that Mary has now become the messenger. The word here, Mary, went and announced to the disciples. That word is the same Root Greek word for angelos. Mary is now the messenger, the envoy, sent to bring the good news. Can you think, Christian, of a higher privilege that a person could have, that a person could be given, 
than the one that Mary was given that day? To be the first one in the history of the world to bring the good news of the gospel to someone else. Christian, do you consider it a privilege or a burden to bring the good news of the gospel to this world? Ask yourself, when was the last time you brought a non-Christian good news about something other than the gospel versus the last time you brought a non-Christian the good news of the gospel? Today, as I said, is Palm Sunday. And as we think about that day, as we think about Jesus entering Jerusalem, there's an interesting story about something that happened just before Jesus entered Jerusalem. When he was passing through Jericho, Luke tells us that as he was passing through Jericho, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. He was the chief tax collector. This man was probably the most hated man in the whole area. He was a chief tax collector and very rich, which meant that he was extorting people and taking their money. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on a crowd of the cat crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree, you've probably heard this story before, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass by that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. What did Jesus say? Here he has a whole crowd of people. He looks into the tree and he calls his name. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, he came down, and he received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus was a lost sheep, and Jesus found him and called him by name. It didn't matter what he had done before. It didn't matter what anyone else thought of him because just like us, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost. That's what every one of us were before he found us. Before he finds us, Christian, you and I are the picture of hopelessness and helplessness as well. Before he finds us, Christian, you and I All we can do is stand and stare at the grave knowing that that's where we're headed. Knowing that there's nothing we can do. And up till the moment that he calls us Christian, we hear lots of voices in our lives say quite a few nice things to us. We hear parents tell us to try hard, that they love us, to be respectful. We hear teachers tell us to do our best and that we can succeed at things we try and put our minds to. We hear coaches Tell us, good job, and hey, you made varsity this year. 
If we're fortunate, we hear our spouse say, I do. If we're even more fortunate, we hear our children say, I love you, mommy or daddy. But friends, as good and as helpful as those voices are, none has the power to erase our state of hopelessness and helplessness. There is only one, one word from one person that changes our entire life. In the instant that the risen Lord Jesus calls us by name, that is the time when we finally have hope. How do you hear him call your name? Well, you hear it now as you read the Word of God. You hear it when you hear a sermon preached. You hear it when your friend shares with you the good news of the gospel. However you hear it, though, Christian, you can't mistake it. Because He calls your name as only He can. And you turn from the tomb. You turn from the grave. You turn from your hopelessness. And you look at Him. And everything else fades into the background. And then you run. And you fall at His feet. And you cling to Him for dear life. It's understandable. I mean, after all, He's your Lord and He's just rescued you. You hold on for a while, and then he gives you a mission. He says, don't cling to me forever. I want you to go, and I want you to go with this mission. I want you to proclaim to others the good news that you have seen the Lord. Christian, rejoice this morning because the Bible didn't end with a mysterious disappearance and an angel from a message from men in white. The story has been completed. We know the end, not only of this story, but the end of all of human history. Because our Lord is the risen Lord, and your Lord, Christian, is alive, and he has called you by name. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful to be here today. Thank you for reminding us of this wonderful truth. Thank you for what you did that morning to Mary and that you did the same with us and that now we have the privilege of honoring you. We pray that we would honor you by sharing this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.